You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting and impressive stories from people all over the world working in a variety of disciplines and sectors to change our planet for the better. I'm Joy, and this week we speak with Frank Goldbeck, the founder of Golden Coast Mead, a startup based in Southern California focused on saving bees and making people merry. Among many things, we talk about how regenerative farming can help save bees, as well as strategies to do good and find meaning in your work. Follow along or jump ahead using the show notes on our website at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Enjoy. Frank, thank you so much for having us here at Golden Coast Mead. We're super excited. So to kick things off and to give the the listeners an idea of, of what we're doing here, can we go back to the beginning and find out where were you born and where did you grow up? Or should we start with cheering the audience with our yes. coffee meat? Uh, even better, yeah. even Cheers. better. Cheers. Frank has just poured us, for the listeners, the most golden looking. Can you explain, Frank? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, mead, alcohol made from honey, um, 12% ABV. The bees have to visit about 50,000 flowers to make the honey that goes into this one taster. So we like to say a sip has about 10,000 flowers in it. Whoa. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, it's a coffee mead, so we've added coffee after the fermentation. And, you know, since it's the morning, figured it was appropriate. Uh, <laughs> but enjoy. Yeah, cheers. cheers. Oh, wow. I can taste the coffee. It's really strong. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. That is delicious. I've never yes. tasted anything like that before. That is so, so good. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we, we envision mead being this light, delightful beverage that kind of lights people up from the inside. So hopefully it's bright. But there's a lot of layers to it. You get the honey notes, you get uh, balance, you get refreshing qualities. And uh, we like to say there's a mead for every meal, there's a mead for every palate. So this is just one of the wavelengths on the spectrum of mead. <laughs> I love <laughs> so, it. So many options, eh? <laughs> so, Endless. So, so yeah. tasty. I love it. It's really good. Okay, cool. So The other back. thing we should mention before we start is that we are in the meadery. And there's all kinds of action going on around us. So apologies in advance if there is a bit of beeping or a bit of construction happening. Um, that is just part of the yeah. environment we're just in. Just FYI for the listeners, uh, there is a little bit of ambience, but it's all part of the, the it's journey. It's all part of the story. All mm. part of the story. <laughs> so Frank, sorry, back to the beginning. You're about to tell us where you were born and where did you grow up. Thanks. So we, um, we're Californians. I was born in Southern California in Upland uh, near my family's Apple Ranch uh, in San Bernardino. Uh, my mom and dad were working at our family's Apple Ranch when I was born, and that's where my grandpa made mead. Then I moved to the beach, uh, Costa Mesa, Newport, and grew up by the beach. Um, went up to school in Berkeley, came back down to San Diego for the Navy. So I really have gotten to spend the majority of my life uh, outside of some travel in, in California. And that, I mean, it's a really outdoorsy life. As you were telling us before we hit record, can you tell us a bit about the lifestyle? Gladly, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of about what we do here at Golden Coast is this idea that like nature, we're a part of nature, nature sustains us, a relationship with nature inspires us, gets us this idea that we're a part of a system that's much larger than just a anthropocentric view of, of life, a human-centered view of life. So um, I grew up surfing, grew up hiking, um, came to find you know, the greatest sense of wonder and awe and connection through nature. So we hope to kind of encapsulate that with our mead and share that with people and inspire people with that, with our mead and the story of the bees and our interrelationship that goes back to time immemorial um, through that. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, okay, I I just want to back up for a second. So you you went to school, from what I understand, you studied economic development at UC Berkeley. Is that right? Right. Okay. And then you went on to the Navy. That's quite a change. What what was that experience like for you? Thanks. Yeah, how do you go from surfing and hiking to the to, Navy? To, the, to, yeah. to economic development and then the Navy. It's oh, just so gosh, yeah. Well, so I was 16 years old when September 11th happened. So that was kind of an eye-opening experience for me, right? Um, I was a junior in high school and... Um, surf team you know it wasn't a surf team day so it wasn't surfing that morning 
I was uh, just on my way to school and heard the news and kind of blew open my understanding of the world. So kind of my reaction was pacifism. Like how can more violent conflict stop violent conflict? That doesn't make sense to me. But kind of took it to uh, the next phase in my life, which was looking at colleges and went out to Washington, D.C. to look at a couple colleges and met my stepmom's cousin, who was a colonel in the army at the time. And I expected him to drive up in a black sedan with a black suit and black sunglasses on, you know. <laughs> That's what we imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he drives up in a VW Westphalia camper van and takes us to his house and shows me pictures of negotiating the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, where they reduced the number of nuclear weapons in the world by like 50% with the Russians, you know. Wow. And he was a 30-year-old man, you know, helping to make that happen in the world. And I was like, wait. You're in the military and you're making the world less destructive and violent. Like, how, how does that work? And it's like, yeah, it takes all kinds, Frank. We need, you know, good people. You know, we need the guys at the tip of the spear because that's the world that we live in. But we need people behind that whole infrastructure trying to make this system more safe and more stable and, you know, kind of better for everybody. So I was like, oh, okay. And I'd come from a family where military service was a tradition. And so I started to kind of explore that. And... Um, ROTC is this program where Reserve Officer Training Corps, you, you get um, trained to be an officer in the Navy or whatever branch of the military while you go to school. And so that opportunity to go to college while preparing for this opportunity to serve and lead and kind of be in and of the world and doing that work on that scale really was compelling at that point. So. Um, applied for a scholarship and, and got a scholarship to go to college and do the training. And my original intention was to be a Marine Corps officer, and that was not a good fit. Uh, so luckily, went lateral over to the Navy, and that was a much better fit. And so at the same time, I'm studying economic development at Berkeley and um, how does the flow of goods and services in the world affect the development of culture and the change of culture globally? So it left me with a lot of questions. And then when I joined the Navy, I was there. I was in Central America doing development work. I was in the Persian Gulf chasing pirates. And this understanding that like we have built an economy that works off of the flood, flow of oil and dollars. You know, over the last 60, 70 years since World War II, the global culture that we've built is dependent on the free flow of those two things, right? Yeah. And we bear a lot of cost to do that. And I realized, you know, I really wanted to see change happen. Um, but as a young naval officer, it was going to take decades to influence that system if I got to that point. And I'd rather go home and make those changes myself in my community. Yeah. Know? So that's one of the reasons that the idea for Golden Coast Mead was born and has become what it is because out of that desire to create that change locally. Gee, okay. So that's quite a shift. And I'm curious to know how hard it was to make the jump from pretty solid career, I'm sure, in the Navy to your own micro business here in Southern California. Well, solid career is uh, <laughs> <laughs> relative. One of, one of the early experiences was running a ship aground off the coast of Kuwait. I was on watch when we ran a ship aground. Whoa. And, uh, you know, I come from a good tradition of that. Nimitz, who was the admiral, you know, the five-star admiral of the Navy during World War II, ran a ship aground when he was a junior officer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, he, you know, encountering that level of absolute failure Right, like running a ship aground is like the thing you don't do when you're a naval officer. It's like, so this is your own ship? Yeah, 690 foot. Like, and you accidentally just you've, run it onto the You earth. steered it or did you just not look out for the iceberg, so to speak? Or what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds absolutely <laughs> disastrous. <laughs> it was. <laughs> well, we lucked out because it was just a soft uh, grounding. It was sand, a sand shoal that was charted, but um, that kind of shifted. Anyways, uh without getting too far into the weeds, when they talk about a mishap like that, which have been going on recently, you know, ships running into each other in the Navy, like that's happened relatively frequently over the last year. Um, they do 
an after the fact analysis and there's a lot of layers of redundancy that have to get violated for an accident like that to happen. And I was one of those. And as an officer, like your authority is very high. So your responsibility is very high. And so even though there are other layers of potential um, checks and balances, if an officer screws up, like the problem is, is very serious, right? Wow. I was a very junior officer, so I got a second chance, but the navigator got fired, the captain got fired. Yeah, so, but they call it the Swiss cheese model, as if a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese line up so that one hole shoots all the way through and the accident happens. Right. And that is what happened, you know, from the captain's boss, whose staff approved the charts, which violated the basic rules of safe navigation. Like you don't drive within three miles of shoal water because you have to stand up two times the number of people to make sure that the ship is driving safely in that dangerous of a position to the most junior guy who's there on the map charting our position and dead reckoning our speed and direction and should have warned us, hey, we're going to run into a thing if we continue on this course at this speed. I recommend you change course, you know, and my job was to supervise those folks and make sure they were doing that job and giving those reports when those kinds of circumstances came up. And I didn't know that job, you know, because the operational tempo of the Navy had kind of kept us moving through the training cycle so quickly that as we qualified to go on this deployment, it was a lot of failed evolutions and training exercises and we didn't have to stop and slow down and pass them it was like all right you'll figure it out on the way yeah so so do, you know i don't want to shirk responsibility because i could have prevented it but i also see from a systems approach that when you put more and more demands on fewer and fewer resources things start to slide yeah you know and so as a business owner now who's thinking systemically but acting very locally you know i think it would serve us as a human culture to kind of reassess how complex we've made things and bring it down to a more local level and create that sense of ownership because the impact that we're having is our community and people that we care about and so the sense of stepping into that responsibility is is really joyful because it's people that we care about that are getting affected by that rather than this like kind of huge system that we just kind of feel like cogs in the machine of. Yeah, yeah you get lost in Disconnected it, Disconnected from yeah. the, the actual impact of what you're doing. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. So I want to zoom out and just <laughs> yeah. ask you a question about, so you clearly have a love for nature and also bees, obviously they're an integral part of, of making mead. Can you tell us why that's the case? Why, why do you love nature? Why do you love bees? Mm. Where did this come from? Mm. Yeah. Mm, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, that's so great. It's a doozy. Yeah. I, the first thing that comes to me is these trips that I would take um, with my family and with school where we would just go out into nature and the endless beauty and, and uh, immersion that you found in it, you know, whether it was hiking through Big Sur, which is this beautiful oh. part of the California coast where there's redwoods and... Um, natural streams and just so much life and the smell of the place. I mean, talk about like sensory immersion. You know, my dad worked at Disneyland and going to Disneyland was always special, but it was a built environment where you knew that, you know, people were working behind the scenes to kind of create this magic and, and they helped you suspend disbelief. But when you went out into nature, that just got deeper and deeper and deeper until you just realized like, wow, this whole system that we're a part of is fundamentally beautiful and fundamentally, um, it, it's hard to articulate, but when you get out there and you get disconnected from media and um, that sense of self that you cultivate to navigate your normal world and then you're just there in that beautiful environment and you come to understand that like you're a part of it and it's a part of you, how do you, how do you articulate what that means other than that it is deeply meaningful and deeply beautiful? Ah, mm. uh. <laughs> so, so it's amazing, you know, how many, your reaction to your own story there just sort of made me uh, feel like I need to explain that in these interviews that we've had with people who are out there doing something a little bit different, 
we've had very similar responses. You know, that people really feel when they really are truly connected to nature, they really feel like there is something beyond what you know we can even explain. Um, and that is not an unusual thing, and that is quite something you know that we should all try and tap into a little bit more. And as I've walked this journey. You know, and I think about chemistry because chemistry has taught me so much about mead. You know, and I think about biology and, and making mead is this chemical biological uh, exploration, right? That we have these microbes, billions of microbes, to make this two ounce pour of mead, right? And they're consuming the sugar that the bees collected from the plants, uh, which the plants have synthesized from water and carbon dioxide and sunshine. Right, so this like cosmic process where the sun is shining down this energy to create this photosynthesis, and these plants are gathering up this water and gathering gathering up this carbon dioxide in the air, and they're linking together CO two and H two O into C six H twelve O six, right, sugar, and they're secreting that through. Um, the fruit that they produce, which we're familiar with, but also through the nectar they, they produce to entice the bees to come down and pollinate them and spread their reproduction in the world. And then they're secreting it through their roots to feed the microbes that build the soil and break down the organic matter and turn waste into life, right? And then the bees are gathering up this nectar and concentrating it into honey, which we know is this really sweet, beautiful thing. But then we can mix that with water, add the yeast, the yeast break that, break that sugar down and turn it into alcohol, which humans love and have loved for <laughs> yeah. 40 to 100,000 years, as yep. far as we know. Um, and then we have these magical experiences where it just like lights us up from the inside. And that's all because sunshine and plants created that nectar from the beginning, right? And, and we burn that sugar in our bodies and create heat and create light, you know, at a cellular level. I mean, it, it sounds kind of mystical, but the science is there to mm. like bear, you know, we could chart this on a chemical equation. So it's been really wonderful to kind of go from this kind of mystical, like kind of question mark to like no there's actual formulas that describe this but what makes that so wonderful is that mystical question mark you know yeah. at the same time and then to feel like I participate in that and share that with people and they then participate in it on their own level and we're making something that was never made before in that experience absolutely <laughs> somebody should make a movie about that <laughs> that was beautiful cool. you guys want to do that um, not sure where to go from there like that's it I'm done. <laughs> thanks thanks for having us frank uh, well the bees i mean so the bees are one of the things that we love to talk about too because their way of organizing and creating that part of the story is a great entry point for people to like ooh, like they look through that little microscope and it opens up to a whole universe right like people have had interactions with bees they've seen them but when they come to hear that there are you know six sixty thousand bees in a hive and there's one queen who lays, lays like two thousand to five thousand eggs a day and she's working in concert with this super organism right all these individuals working together to create this being, you know, they talk about the hive as this organism of its own, right? It reproduces by swarming and goes start somewhere else, right? And um, so people start to like, oh, oh, okay. And like talking about the different kinds of honeys, right? When the bees are out just gathering nectar from an orange blossom, that honey has an orange blossom flavor and aroma to it. And when they're out gathering nectar from the buckwheat, it's completely opposite. You know, the orange blossom is light and floral and jasmine-y, and the buckwheat is dark and rich and caramel-y, right? And so just those relationships that's in our backyard here in Southern California totally blows open people's perspective on what's possible. You know, something that they took for granted now has so much value and so much beauty. Super cool. For the, the very linear A-type listeners that are listening to this podcast, I'm gonna just jump two steps back. You were in the Navy wasn't your thing. You then decided to start making mead. And you explained to us before we started this podcast that that was inspired by your grandpa. Can you quickly tell us that story again? Gladly, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I remember going up to our family's apple ranch uh, after we moved away and my grandpa pouring mead for people in this little tasting room that he had. And I would watch these kind of grumpy adults transform into these laughing, friendly people 
when my grandpa poured them this golden potion and I was like, Pop, what is this stuff? And he goes, oh, it's an adult drink made from honey. I'm like, oh, I like honey. I'm not an adult, <laughs> but maybe I'll get to drink that someday. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then um, read all these epic stories where mead pops up, you know, Beowulf, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. And it's like, oh, this is the stuff that wizards and elves and yeah. warriors drink. Gandalf like, loves that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Before and after slaying monsters. Like, yes, I, I would like some of that. <laughs> so then I'm uh, a few years older and I'm helping my grandpa clean out the garage. And the attic of the garage, there's an old dusty box. And I'm like, that looks like a case that he used to keep his mead in. And I'm like getting all hopeful, but I don't want to get my hopes up too high because this is a decade later or more. And we go over this box and I go through the bottles and there's berry wine and there's grape wine, pear wine, apple wine. And the last bottle I pull out is his last bottle of mead. And I'm like, oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I go, Pop, could I have this? And he's like, oh, I'm not going to drink it. So he sends me off to school with it. And I share it with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And we just have this rose-colored night. And we're like, we need more of this in our life. Yeah. So I share this mead with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And we go, we need to make this stuff. And so we figure out how to make it. And then we're making it for friends in college. And they start drinking five gallons in a night. You know, a whole batch five of Five gallons in a I, night. I lived in a co-op house, so a cooperative house where there were 35 people. And we would have parties. So... Uh, that must have been fun. <laughs> oh man, dance like dance offs ensue. <laughs> honey mead induced dance-offs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like uh, sugar and honey mead. It's like yeah, it's like a giddy buzz. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of those nights, one two of my friends are there drinking, and one of them goes, "You know, people would give us money for this." And I'm like, "That's crazy, man." And he's like, "No, that's how it works. People like something, and they give you money for it." <laughs> Huh, okay. So the seed's kind of planted then. Then I have the Navy. And after the grounding, things got really demanding and difficult. And so it'd be like 16-hour days, seven days a week, you know, kind of recovering from that. And uh, I would come home, and my girlfriend and I are now married, and I would lay on the floor. Teresa is her name. And I would lay on the floor and not talk for about half an hour. And at one night, she goes, Frank, you know, I don't think you like the Navy. Like, <laughs> Something's telling me that you don't like the Navy. <laughs> like, I, d- something I, I can't don't? put my finger on it. Uh, <laughs> you love to talk, yeah, and you don't talk when you come You're on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, open the door and just lay down in the Jeez. living room, you know. Oh, no. Uh, and, and I think we've all been, you know, or rather, I think there's a point where everyone kind of faces that, and then you kind of go, well, what do I do at that point? Do I just suck it up? And there, there's some really incredible strength and, and humility in that. But my wife asked me this question, Frank, what if you had all the time, money, and energy in the world? What would you do? I was like, oh, uh make mead and share it with people like i love doing that yeah. let's do that and she goes well figure out how to make a living and let's do that so here we are can, um, I, can I just say that that i mean that is you would need a massive amount of courage to to do that kind of thing because it just seems from an outsider's perspective so random i mean not random in the fact that you know you love mead and, and you've had a history with it but just it's a random venture. It's not like the traditional corporate path. And I think, I think it just shows a lot of courage to do that kind of thing. Thanks. Well, I think, you know, we're incredibly lucky to have so much support. But I think to invite people into that adventure and give them a chance to participate in it gives them that sense like, you get to help build this thing. And I need your help because I can't do it myself, you know. And I would be remiss to say, like, that question mark that we mentioned earlier, like, what is this thing that creates so much beauty in the world? I feel like when, I don't know how to say it, but, like, beauty and and goodness are forces that kind of create their own sustainment if you give yourself to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Investing in the things that are actually worth investing in. And and when it gets hard, you go, this is worth it. Because what else would I do? You know, 
go back to a corporate job where I run a shipper ground, you know, and my <laughs> friends are having a very difficult time, to say the least, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, no, I want, I want to make a different world where everyone can know their gifts and share them. Totally. Let's talk about that world. What is, we actually haven't told the listeners what Golden Coast Mead is and what you do here. We are sitting in the tasting rooms. What is, what is it and what do you do here? Thanks. So Golden Coast Mead is a mead company. We make alcohol from honey and we share it with people. And we seek to do that better and better every day. From an ecological perspective, that means partnering with beekeepers who are committed to stewarding these their bees through this huge change that we're seeing, right? Colony collapse disorder has popped up in the last 10 years. Um, we're losing 30 to 50% of commercial hives every year. It's getting a little bit better, but there's so many forces that are influencing the effect on the bees and the bees are critical to our food system. They bring us one in three bites of our food, our nuts, our berries, our vegetables. Um, most of the dairy is dependent on pollination by bees as well because bee, uh, cows eat alfalfa and um, clover, which the bees pollinate. So if we didn't have bees, our diet would be much less diverse and much less delicious. So we need them. They are an agricultural species, but we built this agriculture that's dependent on them. And if we don't have them, it's a big shift. Um, plus, they're just beautiful. I mean, people talk about how they spread the li love life of plants. Rudolf Steiner, who's this guy at the turn of the last century, kind of a Tesla-like character, talks about how bees are literally responsible for the reproduction of plant life. And reproduction is about love, you know, creating more life in the world. And without bees, we don't have that. So we like to say more, more bees, or more meat equals more bees equals more life. Uh, and it ties directly into the mead business model because as we build the demand for mead and high quality mead, we can pay more for high quality honey. So beekeepers can shift their beekeeping operations from being pollination dependent where they get rented by farmers to pollinate their crops in these huge monocultures where there's a lot of pesticides and stuff sprayed towards, no, we're just going to raise honey and we're going to make our business based off of raising really good honey and selling it to mead makers at high, high prices. Is that how it works? So, the, so the, the big agricultural businesses out there will rent hives yeah. and do they actually just physically pick up the hives and put them in their crops? The beekeepers bring them on the back of semi-trailers. I mean, imagine semi-trailer trucks full of beehives. Rented crowd. Yeah, yeah, and they, they for the almond Rent a crop, workforce. <laughs> for the almond crop, for instance, it's in Southern California in the Central Valley. And if you drive from LA to San Francisco, you take the five freeway and you see just, as far as the eye can see, almond orchards. And in February, they're paying like $200 a hive to get one hive to the Central Valley to create pollination. And so 80% of the commercial hives in the United States end up, you know, from Maine and Florida on the northeast and north or southeast corners of the country and everywhere in between, people drive their bees to the Central Valley and do pollination. Canada, and there were even people shipping bees from other countries to do the pollination. What? Isn't that ironic that it's so, just that entire, the logistics of doing that, points to the answer that bees are the most important thing in this whole ecosystem, and yet we're not valuing them enough. It's no, so strange. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's kind of a symptom of our systemic way of thinking right now, right? Is like, think narrowly, vertically, and pay every step of the way, instead of think holistically, think about how do we create life with every relationship and maximize the resilience that exists within that system and the interdependence, because that's going to make a web rather than this column that is built up really tall and skinny yeah. and can fall over. We've got this web that's really interdependent and, and stable because of all those interconnections. If one node on the web falls out, the web still works. So these are huge commercial beehives that are shipped around the country, driven up and down the highways, and they're collapsing, these commercial hives. Yeah. yeah. And why are they collapsing? Sorry. Yeah. USDA, which is our agricultural service, has put out a, a synthesis of a number of reasons. Pesticides, a mite that vectors a virus and a fungus, the stress of migratory beekeeping that we expose them to only one kind of food for a long period of time and they're kind of stressed by driving on the back of trucks and so their immune systems are, are low and then they spread all these diseases amongst themselves and so a hive just kind of disappears. 
It's called colony collapse disorder, and it's not like any other form of hive death that we're familiar with. Um, and they're, they're making a lot of progress with how to treat these things, but our vision is a system where to make honey, all you need is bees on top of a healthy ecosystem, right? And that ecosystem flourishing. So as we talk about you know, an ecology and an economy that takes us into the future without more and more cost being incorporated into the system and more and more people kind of dedicating their livelihood to just sustaining this kind of shaky tower, but instead like finding what they love and doing it and building that, I see more and more vibrant food production systems that are biodiverse uh, and locally based, right? So, so local farms, relocalizing the food system. We've, um, there was a time when it was three in 10 people in the United States were farmers, right? And now we're down to less than one in 10. So we, and, and the average age is over 50. So like farmers are getting old and their farms are huge and they're only growing one kind of crop and they're spraying all these pesticides uh, fungicides, miticides to prevent those crops from getting spoiled. But that means that all of the other life that existed in that system is killed in order to just produce one thing. And so that creates that skinny tower that's easy to fall over, which is kind of what I experienced in the Navy. Mm. You know, if that tower is so tall and skinny and there aren't all the people in line to keep it up, it falls over. So, so what's the alternative to that? And I think meat is a huge point in bringing awareness to that and then building it because you just need bees on top of a healthy ecosystem with as many kinds of flowering plants as you can get. And out of that, you get an incentive to plant trees, to plant uh, vining crops, to plant bush crops, like polyculture and agroforestry are the technical terms for it. But you think about a farm no longer as just one field where you're trying to kill everything else into like a solar um, array where there's trees in the back, right, on the north edge of the line that the land naturally curves on, and then shorter, so tall timber trees are not producing trees in the back, um, shorter food producing trees like apples or pears right in front of them, vining crops that go up between the two on trellises, so you're getting another layer of food production between the two, um, bush crops down here, and then row crops down here. So now on one acre, you're growing five different kinds of crops and creating this solar array, and then you do that again, and you do that again. And the amount of life that all of these different um, food-producing species, plants, can support around that just makes the biodiversity just flourish. And the need for um, pesticides and fertilizer and all of these synthetic inputs that we're spending a ton of money on and that are destroying our topsoil is like gone. So that's the vision, right? And mead now is a part of that because we're putting bees on top of those farms and they're gathering nectar year round pretty much. I mean, in the winter and temperate climates, they're going to be dormant. But the rest of the year, they're gathering this high value uh, sugar that we're then turning into this high value mead that can tell the story of this future. So it's really part of this new agroforestry. Yeah. And how how prevalent is that in practice? Is that it's picking up? Tom Vilsack, who was the secretary of USDA under President Obama, was really pushing it. Uh, I mean, that's a relative way to put it, but but it was like uh, there's some great quotes of Vilsack's that I can't call to mind right now, but he was basically saying, you know, one of the big solutions to food, carbon, soil, water is agroforestry and it's a bit of a technological jump but the permaculture community and the regenerative farming community is really trying to popularize that and so patagonia has started a food company to do that a food company mm -hmm. i mean we know the brand very well we we basically we dicked to, out in patagonia to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because they're fantastic they're sustainable they're a great company they've got a fantastic ethos Tell us about the food. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So their vision is to make their food company 10 times bigger than their clothing company and help transform the food industry into this kind of regenerative future. So we can think about human activity kind of on a spectrum from where we're at now, which is kind of extractive, right? We're um, just taking from the earth without giving back. And, you know, you take and take and take and eventually you can't take more, right? T towards sustainable where you can just like, 
okay, that means that we can at least keep doing this. But then the next step after sustainable is regenerative, right? Through our activity, we're making the system more capable of supporting life. We're cap making the system more capable of becoming its best self. And so we can apply that to humans too, right? Like going from being a cog in the machine to being aware of where you're at and like imagining what you would do if you were your best self towards actually doing that and offering that work as a gift to the world and then asking for what you need to sustain that effort. So it's a, it's a big transformation in thinking, both on a macro scale and a personal scale. But it's interesting. I, I find that fascinating because the, the, for, for a long time, the target has been to, for instance, achieve carbon neutrality. And, and obviously, there are very, very few businesses in the world that, that are able to do that. But looking beyond that and, and going for a restorative effect, so not just to have no effect or as little as possible, but to have a positive input, that is truly exciting. Yeah, that is yeah. really exciting. And the customer is the key piece, right? Because every time they spend their dollar, they're voting on, do I contribute to this extractive system where waste is a byproduct and now we have to deal with that on a social level, right? towards sustainable okay at least we can keep this thing going towards regenerative by my act of giving a dollar i'm actually making the world more abundant more beautiful more joyful more just more peaceful so yeah yeah i mean we're, we're big into that idea of consumers actually taking charge and putting their dollar into places that are doing the right mm -hmm. thing or to at least you know, be aware of where they're putting their dollar. Right? And it's, it's impossible to be perfect, right? Like, I, I think for me, that's one of the big lessons. It's like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the better. Absolutely. That's well, a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. That can be totally it. crippling, isn't it? Like, you know, you just won't do anything if you feel like you can't do the perfect job. I can totally but <laughs> relate it, to that idea. But it's so true. It's small incremental improvements and being aware of it, I think, is obviously the very first step. And I wanted to ask you, Frank, do you find uh, around the community here in Southern California, is there a growing awareness around being a conscious consumer and spending wisely and choosing the correct products? Totally. Yeah. Over the seven years that we've been doing this, you know, going from talking about sustainable and regenerative and people kind of like regenerative four years ago was not even a term I could use publicly. You know, my business partners would be like, is this some crazy Frank term? And I'm like, no, it's not. And then like three years ago when we heard about Patagonia, I was like, we're there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> regenerative, regenerative, regenerative. Yeah. And now they've actually worked with Dr. Bronner's and a few other companies to develop this regenerative organic standard, which has a layer of complexity to it. But it, uh, because like regenerative to us and, and folks that um, are really deeply committed to it is a process that is constantly becoming, right? Like regeneration is the point between death and birth. Right? It's like where the metamorphosis and the next stage happens. So to turn it into a certification that you check off on a list kind of stops that constant yeah. evolution. Yeah. yeah. But they recognized, you know, Patagonia and Browners and others, that if they didn't define it and set a high standard, it could get co-opted and watered down. So that's kind of on the leading edge. But on the customer edge, there's a huge demand and awareness at, that's growing. And um, at Expo West, which is the big natural food show, you know, they talk about the big trends and regenerative popped up as like one of those trends. And my hope is that it's not a flavor of the month, flavor of the year trend, that it's a big progression in human consciousness. Yeah. 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 yeah no, it, I mean, it points to the idea that we all have a responsibility, whether we are a business, whether we are a corporate, whether we're a consumer to actually make a difference. You know, if you are aware and you care about the issues, it's your responsibility to be a leader in this industry. And I think responsibility is a heavy word, right? Because I've been guilted into doing things I didn't want to do with that word, right. responsibility, and it fell apart in the Navy. You know, it was my responsibility to keep that ship from running ground, but I didn't own it enough and really love it enough to learn what that meant and then go do it. Right. Right? So, like, to think about responsibility as ability to respond. Let's just make it that, you know? And now we've got this choice every time and to know that we don't have to be perfect, but I have this ability to respond with my choices to just make it better. Just make it a little bit better, mm. make it a little bit better. And that feels much less daunting to me and much more empowering and much more like 
oh, I can just make this day better than yesterday. Yeah. And that's all I have to do. And yeah. if I do that over my whole life, we're all going to go on the right, you know, and encourage and support other people to do it too. We're all going to go in the right direction. And then it's not going to be this game of I'm better at it than you and blah, 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 blah. Like we have friends who live in Indiana and basically consume only what they produce. I mean, wow. beeswax candles, ride bikes, like spin their own wool, like crazy. That's next amazing. Level stuff. That but is... they take... They take the last year, uh, month of summer after harvest is done to go help their neighbors. And it's kind of like... Of course they do. Well, <laughs> yeah, they're right. But, but they, they have this kind of ethos where it's like you don't guilt anyone into doing what you're doing because that's just going to kind of discourage them. And it's not going to create that sense of human connection that mm. really sustains us and nourishes us, you know. Yeah. Um, and so they... They just encourage everyone, you know, every step of the way. Oh, you traded in your sports car for a sedan. Good for you, you know? Like, you went from 14 miles per gallon to 30 or 50. Like, that's a huge step. Thank you. you that's know? a lot of fuel. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to get on a bike and only, you know, ride your own bike around town. Like, like yeah. if we all start making those steps and encouraging each other, we're going to get there a lot faster than saying this is the only way to do it. Yeah. And I I think that's very a good point because I think a lot of people in these sort of progressive movements can be very black and white. And that is, as you said, it's discouraging. It's a little bit judgy. And it's judgy, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't help the greater cause and, and nobody can be perfect at any given moment. So we really, as you said, have to take these small incremental steps and and as long as we're better than yesterday, then that's great. Right, right. Yeah. We're moving in the right direction. That's the only way we're going to get there. You know, sure. I, I, I love the Lorax. Do you guys know that story by Dr. Seuss? It was a popular book in the 60s and 70s, one that I was kind of raised with. And it's kind of this sing-song story about a guy who moves to this kind of beautiful, natural environment where no other people live. And he cuts down all the trees to make needs, things that people need. And he's kind of cast as the bad guy who kind of like, pulls this thing apart and there's this Lorax who pops out of the trees to speak for the trees and those that have no tongues, the the animals and the fish and the birds that live in this environment. But he's equally at fault because all he does is yell at the the, the human character, the onesler. And so instead of them like figuring out a system that works for both of them, they both just kind of devolve and shout each other into oblivion. And it falls apart, mm. you know, and, and reading it when I was a kid, it was like, oh, the one slur is bad. But now that I'm a business person and I see that we're creating value and we have to, like, make these calculations every time we make a choice and, and feeling like, you know, vegans have an issue with bees and honey. And when I try to engage them and say, well, you know, do you eat fruit and nuts and vegetables? They were probably pollinated by contracted beekeepers who you know, have this business model that depends on shipping these bees and exposing them to all these toxicities and, and risks. Do you think about that in your food choice? You know, I don't want to like guilt people into that, but I think it, it asks for a much deeper and more wholehearted and holistic engagement, which takes humility. And in that story, the Onesler and the Lorax don't have that basic humility that says, hey, you're trying to do your best. I'm trying to do my best. How can we work together to do our best collectively? Yeah. And how can we learn from each other? Because you might have, you know, we all want to do the right thing. Anybody who's listening to this podcast and who is is out there trying to be a better consumer or a better business or whatever it is, we're all trying to do the right thing. And some people feel like, you know, going for a vegan or plant-based diet is the way to go. And they feel like that is the best thing that they can possibly do. But without opening your mind to see what the broader impacts of that particular diet or another particular diet is, you'll never really understand fully the entire ecosystem that you're involved in. So I love that. I love that. Mm, thanks. And it makes it an us-them discussion rather than a we, how do we get here together? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's not an us and a them. It's we're all in this together because we just have this one planet and we're not moving to Mars just yet. So we <laughs> Can you imagine? And even when we get there, like if we yeah. don't evolve our way of interacting. We'll take yeah. the same problems there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, there's a lot to be said for that. So one thing we haven't covered yet is um, is a little bit more about Golden Coast Mead and the products that you have. Oh yes, you know, like yeah. I feel like we should cut, touch on that stuff. What what are you what are you actually what are your products? Yeah. yeah, what is it that you do here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we make alcoholic drinks from honey, uh, mix honey with water, and ferment it. 
and we kind of steal from champagne production and craft beer production to kind of make this style of mead that is light and refreshing and enlivening. Right. So we hope that when people drink our stuff, they experience the honey, and then they experience balance and they experience uh, a, a, an enjoyable, like kind of lifting up. Uh, quality. A buzz, excuse the pun. Exactly. How many times is that joke made? Uh, yeah, no, we love puns. Bees <laughs> and honey have lots of puns associated with them. So, they're, they're, if you come into the tasting room, you'd get to have a flight of four means from our eight to 12 that we have on tap at any one time. And you could experience a light floral orange blossom mead. You could experience a rich, complex sour mead with spices added to it. You could have a kind of um, more sweet and full-bodied coffee mead like we're drinking now um, and we can iterate in all these different directions right there's a um, mural that we have up in the meadery where it's kind of the tree of mead and humans have been drinking mead for at least 9,000 years documented but wow. this is kind of limited by our use of clay as drinking vessels and storage vessels people were using animal skins and uh, organs to store mead is and it, is it woven great? vessels as well oh That's even ro woven vessels okay. yeah grasses and stuff so those have all decayed and so the, the archaeological okay. evidence kind of maxes out at the clay. implementation of clay is it the oldest form of alcohol in the form world? of alcohol wow so dr patrick mcgovern is the expert on this and if people are interested in it he's written a number of books about going and doing excavations and finding drinking vessels and taking the dust and doing microchemical analysis on it and then reconstructing these recipes. That uh, is incredible. It's so nuts. cool. <laughs> yeah, that is incredible. And he talks about how in the center of the Milky Way galaxy there is a cloud of ethanol. There's a cloud of alcohol just floating there in the oh, center of the universe, like, or the center amazing. of the galaxy. Yeah, <laughs> And like that, that basic uh, biology, there's DNA that produces ethanol going way, way back, and we evolved from that and have that proclivity in our genes. So, like, he kind of threw it out there softly that maybe humans have been drinking mead for 40 to 100,000 years. Pretty mackerel. Because all you needed to do was find a beehive that flooded and spontaneously fermented, right? Like, a tree falls over in a storm. That beehive that was in that tree is now gone, but the honey's there, the water falls in there, you've got this honey water mix, and then yeast, which is just a fungus that floats around in the air, lands in there, starts eating the sugar and converting into alcohol. And our hunter-gatherer ancestors go find this, taste some, and they're like, wow, this is great. <laughs> so, so Chances are pretty high that it could, right? Totally. Over 100,000 years, surely. Have, a, have yeah. you ever seen the film Beautiful People? I mean, it's, it might only be South Africans that know the film, but it's a, a film about animals in South Africa. I think it was Beautiful People, wasn't it? Where uh, the animals get drunk on the marula fruit. Oh, gosh, the elephants? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah everyone's yeah. like, the monkeys are drunk, the elephants are drunk. Everybody's like having the best time when they're going. Yeah, we have this proclivity <laughs> for altered mental states. And <laughs> it helps deal with, you know, there's studies about one to two drinks a night with friends. And, you know, not drinking too much, but drinking with friends reduces cortisol levels, increases longevity across all incomes and socioeconomic brackets. Yeah. So, so you know, I think there's something really good about it. It's a double-edged sword. You know, of course, alcohol you... is the most dangerous drug that we consume in yeah, Western yeah. civilization. You know, like it's very worse insidious than in that way. Or, yeah, incredibly yeah. destructive. Yeah. I mean, but I can I just say that this little drum that we've had here has really settled my cortisol levels. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and we hope it's just you know one to two glasses a night with friends and and with this intention of celebrating the beauty that is inherent in this whole process. So that's what we do here. We, yeah. share, we, share, we make and share meat. And actually we're sitting in the, the tasting room now and it's a lovely vibe. We've got like wood, tables, we've got the mead available on the tap from the, are they taps or where can you get them from? Yeah. You can get them on from the, the taps. And so you can actually come here and taste them here as well as I saw that you um, your opening hours are till 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. So you right. can actually come and just chill here. Yeah, Is that drink right? and, and talk stories about mead and meet other interesting creative folks. And uh, we also do a number of farmers markets. We have a mead club so people can subscribe to get a regular uh, quarterly shipment of our mead um, through our website. And... We do some distribution. That game is kind of built by the big producers who, you know, 
spend a lot of money on marketing um, and we're way smaller than that. So our, we're very limited in who we distribute with, but we're with like Cafe Gratitude in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach and uh, Gracias Madre, which are kind of these next level restaurants that are really seeking to serve um, transformational food. Wow. Mm, that's so cool. Yeah. Do you sell it online as well? We, we sell a bit online. Uh, everything's out of stock that we sell online right now. So we have a wait list. Does uh, it get snapped up like that? I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wild and humbling. Um, and it just makes me aware of what I can do better. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> is, that just a, is that just a limit on production? Or is that just because it's a small operation? Yeah. And, and just all the moving parts of making a business really hum and it's throughput which we're working on, you know, this week was the first time that we mapped our whole throughput value creation cycle. Right. I so. suppose it's kind of tricky if you're trying to buy honey from the best, beekeepers. the best beekeepers that have happy bees and regenerative, you know, farming practices. There's probably not that many of them. <laughs> <laughs> we have two families that we work with who are just wonderful and, and are able to provide a lot of honey. But yeah, it's, it, it is an issue that we're actually committed to making, you know, we want honey, the price of honey to go up. We want the demand for high quality honey to go up so that these beekeepers can transition their model away from pollination towards honey production. Yeah. So we're just kind of like giving that a big bear hug and asking our customers to kind of be patient with us as we try and make the best of best. Are you tapping into the, the tourist route at all? Because this is kind of like a hotspot, right, for tourists. Like I can imagine it would be like a really fun experience if you're a tourist to like I don't know if you want to have shipments no, yeah. of tourists like descend on your... Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it, we've got to grow a little bit and get our systems down a little bit, but we certainly do get people who hear about us from right. friends who are in town and then it spreads that way. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. So, so we, I'm conscious that we are almost at an hour, but is there anything special in 2018 for you, Frank? Anything that's coming up? Yeah, so we are working on this organic honey standard um, with a couple of big partners, and I would love to see that happen. Um, the U.S. has lagged on creating a standard for organic honey, but if we can pull it off, we create this incentive for people that own large tracts of land to hopefully convert them to organic and invest in biodiversity, because if we put bees on top of those ecosystems and they're gathering that honey, they can now like monetize that regenerative act of transitioning that land to a non-chemical biodiverse ecosystem. So we're creating more life and then we're buying honey from those people and we're turning it into mead and selling it to folks and saying, when you drink this mead, you're drinking this place. Like that would be, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, we would do that tomorrow. And one thing that I, we didn't quite touch on, which I just remembered um, reading about the mead before was that, and, and this might be completely obvious to everyone else, but I thought it worth pointing out is that the, the mead will actually taste like the place from where the honey comes yeah, from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the plants that the bees gather the nectar from are unique to that place, and the nectar has a flavor relative to those plants. And so the blend of all those nectars make that honey totally unique and specific to that place. So in Southern California, buckwheat, sage blossom, um, make this rich, beautiful, dry, complex honey that we turn into this rich, beautiful, dry, complex mead. Whereas in the Pacific Northwest, cranberry, blueberry, um, evergreens, they'll make a totally different quality. And now we can compare these things and say like, well, if you like that Southern California mead, you like Southern California. If you like that Pacific Northwest mead, you like Pacific Northwest. And, and we can create a sense of connection that's pervasive. That's cool. Mm, that is so interesting. Yeah. Is there a mead community globally? Sorry, I'm just interested to know. Is there like a, are there growers all over the world? I mean, sorry, are there mead producers all over the world? It's it's picking up. Um, mead was consumed all over the world. Every continent, except for Antarctica, had a mead tradition. And it was mostly forgotten about because it's expensive to make and difficult to make. Um, but they're coming back. Uh, we've got something like 400 meaderies in the U.S. now. And dozens globally in other countries so cool. paris has an incredible meadery where they have rooftop hives in the city and then they make the mead in the catacombs uh australia oh has, has a number of meaderies um south africa has a couple because there's traditions of african communities drinking mead that go back to like time immemorial wow uh, they call it bush beer but oh um, bush beer yeah i think yeah. i've had that years and years ago it's intense, wow. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Heard, but you know, with some modern production techniques, 
you could make means that were a reflection of those incredible ecosystems. And so like one of our visions is to kind of help people do that all over the world. And so uh, we've helped a guy in Uganda, uh, Ojok Simon, who has a cooperative of uh, partially sighted beekeepers um, start a meadery. And, and then we've helped folks in Japan and um, Jamaica uh, so, so we really want to see this spread and relocalize the you know, alcohol industry is a $1.2 trillion industry globally. So to make a crack into that with mead and, and do this regenerative work all over the world is, is really... Redefine the whole industry. <laughs> and hopefully get people thinking about these systemic impacts we make with just our daily drinking choice, for instance. Yeah. Drinking, like drinking responsibly, but in more senses than one. Regenerative. Yeah, exactly. Regeneratively, yeah. 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 But drinking regeneratively. You can make a hashtag out of that one, I think. It's like yeah. A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like a worldwide ecosystem. I love that. That's fantastic. Thanks. It definitely would be remiss of me not to ask you if you have any words of advice for anybody out there mm. who is or in the same position that you were in the Navy and you were making, looking to make that jump. Have you yeah. got any advice, Frank, for anybody in that position? Thanks, man. It's a journey, you know, and a journey begins with a single step. And to have that first step come from the most joyful and like love-filled part of you, I think is a wonderful gift to, to give yourself. So like if you're asking yourself that question, what else is there than this? And you go to that spot of you, that's like your truest self, the part of you that you love the most and that you want to be the most in your life. And then you say like, okay, what, what does that look like? And my wife asked me that question. If you had all the time, money and energy in the world, which is like a way to kind of think beyond scarcity and beyond fear, but to think in abundance and think in joy, what would you do? You know, if you woke up today and you had everything you could ever imagine wanting and you just had all the energy to get out and do whatever you wanted to do, what would that thing be? You know, and you really get into that headspace and then you, you answer that question. No matter how hard it gets, you go, well, what else would I do? You know, like, this is what I would do. <laughs> and so then as every little or big challenge comes up, you go, well, the ship might be grounded right now. But... What else would I do? Let's get this ship off the ground. I'd rather have this ship grounded than another ship. Than yeah. Another, yeah, absolutely. And like, okay, so I'm not going to make that mistake again. And I'm going to implement the controls. I'm going to own that thing that I need to own to prevent that from happening again. I love, I love that. that sense of control. Yeah, yeah. That's, awesome. that's really cool. And it's and it's like like control. I think is a is a tricky word because <laughs> it's like humility too, right? And it's like knowing that you can't control the weather. You know, sometimes the sandbar shift. Hopefully you're not going so fast and like on such a unstable platform that if you do make a mistake, uh, Yvonne Chouinard actually talks about this from Patagonia, that like he took little steps and if they felt good, he took another one. And if it felt bad, he took a step back and went a different direction. So you never take a leap and go, oh, I hope this will work out. Yeah. You go, okay, yeah, this step feels good. It's, it's connecting even deeper with that side of me that answered that question initially. Or like, you know what, we tried that and that did not make me feel better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it back and go this direction instead. So, so control in that you don't risk too much, but you're making measured risks along the way, right? Yeah, that. that's yeah. a safe approach to changing course, correcting course in the right direction, but doing it in a, in a risk mitigating fashion. Measured so you're not throwing all caution to the wind, but yeah, I like that. Measured Sorry. and deliberate, right? Measured yeah. and deliberate. Yeah, and, and humble, right? There, there are so many unknown unknowns and we could sit here and spend lots of time and money on making a plan that might not take one of those unknown unknowns into account and then it you know, yeah. kind of blows up. It's like, well, I've spent so much time making on this plan, I should dedicate all these resources to it. Where instead it's like, oh, here's a little opportunity. That could be a big opportunity. We could spend a lot of time thinking about it and making a plan, or we could just take the first step, see how it feels, take the next step, take the next step. So I feel like there's a subtle difference there that people know from being in nature, you know, like, oh, well, that place looks beautiful. Could we get there? Well, let's, let's start, you know, and it's like you always have your plan if it goes wrong to kind of bail out. But then you keep taking steps towards that goal that you yeah. have. 
And either way, you're going to have a rad adventure, right? You're not just going to be sitting at camp going, what if? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all about the rad adventure. Yeah, I love, yeah, I love that. So, so where can people find you, Frank? You're, you're obviously on all the socials and your website. Well, we're on, uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, we're on, we've got a website, goldencoastmead.com. And we'll be here at the tasting room. You know, I, I get out to the farmer's markets two days a week, and then I'm here at the meadery three days a week. Um, so we love to talk with folks in the afternoon and evening. Um, and then on, email, you can get a hold of me, frankgoldbeck at goldencoastmead.com. Uh, responding is um, more and more difficult as things pile up, but I love nothing more than to hear enthusiastic people who are experimenting with mead and thinking about you know, pursuing a passion. Um, and, you know, I love to shoot a couple lines of response and maybe a couple resources um, when I have the chance. There you go. Thanks, yeah. Frank. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think I think that wraps it up. So thank you so much Thanks, for, for, Thanks, for this chat. Yeah. We thoroughly appreciate it. Yeah, it's that been was so awesome. fascinating learning about me. But now, the most important bit, we're going to go and do some taste testing. <laughs> some more tasting. I think this has set the bar. I think we now need to drink mead with every podcast that we do. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> that yes. was so much fun. Regenerative <laughs> drinking. <laughs> but thanks, cool. thanks, Frank. Thanks for educating us on this issue. And, and, you know, the topic of the bees, you know, it's something that's always been at the peripheral of our knowledge. And this has really helped us to understand, the, you know, regenerative, the regenerative world better. Um, so thank you. My pleasure, Joy. Yeah. Um, thank you guys. Hope you enjoy that episode with Frank. Isn't he just such a legend? We found so much wisdom and inspiration in this laid back Southern Californian. So we hope you learned a thing or two as well. To learn more about Frank, click on the links in our show notes. And as always, we'd love to hear what you think of this and other episodes. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time.